Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in, or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now on to the podcast, over and out. All right, everybody, welcome to my weird little pocket of the internet. I am live again today. I'm, I'm currently in snowy, cold New Jersey, visiting family, which is why you'll notice a somewhat different background. I will give people just a couple of minutes to trickle in. I am now, uh, for those of you who mostly watch me on YouTube, I am now also streaming to Periscope just as an experiment. I, I'm using StreamYard, which just introduced multi-streaming options. So figure if it's uh, easy and no skin off my back, I might as well also try streaming to other platforms. We'll see if that works out well. But uh, anyway, today we're going to be joined by Alexander Bard, who is a very interesting person I've recently encountered and communicated with on the internet. He is a, I believe, well, we'll learn more about him. I actually don't know much about him, but I do believe from what public reconnaissance I've been able to do. He is from Sweden, I do believe, but we'll ask him plenty of questions and, and learn more about Alexander in just a minute. He's a bit of a wild man. Uh, he tells me that he is my uh, long lost dirty uncle. So I'm I'm very interested. I'm very interested to meet any man who would dare to uh, self-identify in this way. I'm very intrigued. Uh, so I'm looking forward to talking with him. He seems like a really interesting, freewheeling kind of, yeah, radical, independent, intellectual, exactly my kind of guy, I think. So I look forward to getting to know him better. And I think you're all going to find him quite interesting. And yeah, so that's the game plan for today. I'll bring him on in just a minute. In fact, he's waiting patiently in the wings. I uh, just wanted to give everyone a few minutes to trickle in and get comfortable. Uh, I want to just very briefly before we start, tell you about one thing. I try not to uh, you know, waste too much of your time telling you about all of my uh, thousands of different experiments and projects, but I'd, I'd like to just tell listeners to the live stream show just basically what I'm currently focusing on the most. My big project at the moment, I am building a private community for specifically for independent intellectuals, and I'm rolling it out slowly. It's uh, you know, it's not a big launch yet or anything like that. It's not even really public. It's 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 invite only. Uh, you can request an invitation if you want to, but it's specifically for independent intellectuals. And by independent intellectuals, I mean people who are trying seriously to carve out a serious, long-term, professional intellectual life, but without any institutional affiliations, which typically means on the internet through their own elbow grease and and creativity and ingenuity and a little bit of entrepreneurial spirit. So there's a lot of people out there doing this type of thing, just like me. And right now they're not really talking with each other. They're totally distributed all over the place. The, the independent intellectual does not really have a kind of self-conscious identity quite yet. There's not a, there's not a particularly coherent or unified kind of subculture around it. And I'm not like trying to kind of, you know, monopolize it or, you know, claim, claim ownership of anything like that. I'm just doing my bit to, uh, create some sort of infrastructure and uh, focused community for people who are trying to really figure out as best as possible the the best practices and and exactly how to do this new type of thing that people like myself are 
are trying to figure out as we go. My, my wager is that um, it's increasingly possible to have a financially stable and publicly impactful intellectual career without any institutional affiliations. I'm doing it. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm succeeding. And I know there are a bunch of other people who are also doing it. So yeah, my, my, my wager for this community, by the way, it's called, it's called Indie Thinkers. You can even check it out now. There's just a landing page at IndieThinkers.org. And we have a, we have a working forum with about 30, we have about 30 paying members already. And uh, yeah, my wager is that all of this stuff is so new and it's so difficult, but it is there. It, it is now possible more than ever to have a financially successful, independent intellectual life. Uh, we just, people don't know how to do it yet. And we're figuring it out as we go. But my wager is if you get a bunch of people doing it all in the same room and you build that relation, you build up those relationships and you, and you build out that network and you pool all of the best tips and tricks and uh, best practices, everyone pools their knowledge. My hypothesis is that we can all uh, accelerate our impact and, and success uh, much, much better than we would otherwise isolated and kind of distributed around the world. So yeah, it is a paid thing. It's a, it's a paid private membership community. It's just in private beta. So it's invite only if, but if this describes you, if you're trying to embark on a serious long-term professional intellectual life without any institutional affiliations based on the internet, then this might be for you. And I just want to tell you about it. Um, you can request an invitation and uh, yeah, that's all there is to it. At the moment, it's really just a forum. So uh, for the people who come on board, uh, at the moment, it's just a, a private membership forum based on the discourse platform. Uh, some of you might have used it on, on different platforms. It's a popular forum software. And uh, yeah, we have about 30 people already on board and it's pretty thriving already. I'm, I feel very, I feel very confident about it. I'm very, very excited about it. So yeah, I just wanted to tell you about that. It's in the works. Probably eventually over time, at some point, I'll make it public and kind of anyone who wants to join will be welcome. But in these early stages, I really want to get the formula right. I want to, I want to figure out what works. I want to figure out what doesn't work. And I want to go slowly. I don't want to bring in too many people and be overwhelmed with hundreds of people and, and, and not be able to, you know, guarantee like a high value experience. Um, you know, I'm figuring it out as I go. So I'm trying to do that responsibly and uh, slowly. So right now that's why it's in private beta. So yeah, that's called Indie Thinkers. You can check it out at IndieThinkers.org. And uh, yeah, if you have any questions about it, you can also just email me or, or shoot me a DM on on Twitter or whatever channel you want. I'm happy to tell you more about it. So yeah, that's enough of that's enough plugging for my personal projects. That's what I'm focused on right now. And um, uh, I like to always uh, give a big shout out to my patrons. Big thanks to my patrons who help me do all of this kind of personal, intellectual, you know, creative work that I do, like these live streams. This is essentially supported by the patrons. So huge shout out to the patrons and and big thanks for the patrons. So. All right, that's all for me for now. Uh, I think we should jump right in and talk out talk talk with Alexander Bard. If you have any questions or comments now or anytime through the talk, um, there is a comment. There should be comments available on Twitter and also YouTube. So I'm I'm looking at them right now. Alexander should also be able to see them if he wants to follow them uh, in the broadcast studio. So um, we are watching your chats, and so yeah, if you have good comments or good questions, I can even put them in the video like that. Um, so if you have a really good comment or question and I see it, I will feature it in the video. Uh, all right, I think that's enough for, for a warm up. a little bit of housekeeping out of the way now, and we are going to bring in Alexander Bard. Here he is, Alexander. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course, man, thanks for-, thanks I, for love I love indie thinkers. I love, this is brilliant. It's so 2020s already. Uh, 
you can always turn into a verb, you know, to indie think. You're an indie thinker. Oh, yeah. You're in you're thinking. So that's right. Uh, and, and after the boring 2010s and the echo chambers, um, I noticed it over here in Europe. Uh, it's all about antagonism now. It's all about finding, you know, people who disagree with you in an interesting way and going to dialogue with them. I, I do this constantly now here in Scandinavia where I live and we have these, these meetings that are surprising. Like, Oh, you never thought these two guys would be on a stage together. And we broadcast them, make the talk shows and we have it a hundred thousands of views within, within 24 hours instantly. People love this. They love this. And I think the people who stay in the echo chambers are the underclass of the 2020s and the people who leave the echo chambers and look for the antagonisms mm. to grow and expand are the winners. And I think that's why exactly why an idea like Indie Thinking is perfectly timed right now. Yeah, that's really well put. So Alexander, I actually don't know that much about you. And I think some of my listeners might not know anything about you. So if it's okay with you, I would love to start off with a bit of a discussion about you, Alexander okay. the Man. Alexander the Man. Could you could you tell us a little bit about your kind of intellectual career and your in your in your personal professional life? And in particular, I think the best way to kick off this part of the discussion would be I would love to to go back in time a little bit and 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 let me know when was it that you first kind of hit the scene as a kind of public creative person or intellectual or, or however you define yourself. Like what, okay. when, when did you have your first break and what was that like? Okay. The problem with America is that America is obsessed with America. <laughs> I mean, America's know what's going on in America, know hardly anything else about the rest of the world. And, and I went to drama school in America, my teens. I loved it. I could have had a probably theater career doing Broadway and all that. But when I lived in New York and I was 20 years old, I decided to leave America because American media consumption already in 1979, when this happened, was all about America all the time. And I find it boring. I was born in South Africa, arrived in Europe early because my parents escaped apartheid. They were libertarian in South Africa. I have a black brother. You get the picture. So we arrived in Sweden eventually, settled there. I then traveled around the world and returned to Sweden in 1998. Uh, and I've been at the Stockholm School of Economics ever since. I had a sort of academic career, uh, where I do digital studies. So I basically teach managers and leaders and stuff like that about digitalization, digital transformation. So it's and quite ambitious. Still, right? And you're still yeah. doing that? Yeah, I do that at the end of the spring and the end of the fall. The rest of the year, these guys want me to travel as much as possible. So I've got a team. So I've got a scientific research team that we travel around the world all the time. And we spend very little time in America. I was only there last year. We traveled to, I just came back from India or did a lecture tour. We also have several research products that work with technology companies and different institutions and ministry, the Ministry of Education, Ministry of Technology, things like that. I spend a lot of time in East Asia, China, love what's going on in Hong Kong at the moment. Uh, I'm also politically involved in the opposition in Iran. I converted Zoroastrianism mm -hmm. in 1992, which is one of the leading philosophers of the East. Mm -hmm. And that means I want the mullahs to go. And I'm really proud of Iranian youth right now and the struggle they're having to get the mullahs out. So I love these freedom struggles in parts of the world, we're not as decadent as we are in America and Europe, where actually freedom means something. And it does to people in Asia and in Africa and places like that, which is why I, I, I love to work in those places more than anything else. So uh, I did a career in the music industry for 25 years. I worked with Universal Music. I even sold them a record company in 1998. If you're over 40 years old, you probably remember bands like the Cardigans, you know, bands that were really successful in the United States, especially in the 1990s. I also discovered a guy called Johan Rank, who I nurtured as an artist. He made a TV series called Chernobyl this last year for HBO. So a lot of these Scandinavian talents are people that I work with. So, so we have a strong 
music industry here in Scandinavia, the industry has become like a media industry coming especially out of Stockholm. Except that Americans hardly know that. Most Americans don't know that Britney Spears has made all the records in Stockholm. Mm-hmm. Celine Dion made all the records in Stockholm. And they hardly know that Katy Perry has made all the records in Stockholm. They just come here to, to, to Scandinavia because it's a great environment for creative work. And they get their shit together here. And then they release it in America. And, of course, they are Americans. So, mm-hmm. so th- there's, there's a strong media industry here in Scandinavia that I find interesting. I was involved with it for 25 years. But decided six years ago that after all the success I had and all the fuck of money I had in my bank account, it was time to let go. And simultaneously, I built a career as a philosopher. And I'd written three books at the time. I've written five. I'm working on the sixth book. I'm working with a co-writer called Jan Sedekvist. And we're pretty established by now in Europe. There's also quite a lot of interest in our work in the States. And we're certainly traveling the rest of the world. So Barton Sedekvist become like a name in the philosophy world. And I think that is because we were pioneers in doing philosophy on technology. So, okay, okay, interesting. So I want to un- unpack some of that. It's a very interesting trajectory you've had. And a, a kind of focus of my show over the past couple weeks or months has been really trying to kind of understand the anatomy of successful intellectual careers that are outside of the box of kind of the boring, rigid, overly disciplined kind of academic model. So if I understand correctly, you're most of your paycheck through most of your life has come from an academic position. Is that right? No, 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 no. Academics don't pay. For no. God's sake. You only do, that's only to have something on your card more or less. And even research funding, I, I glad to call one of my philanthropist friends or a billionaire or something and say, I've got a great idea. And he throws money at me and I can go off and sit in South Korea and interview 17 year old schoolgirls about their smartphone use or something. These okay, days okay. are all the, these days are rather called Google ideas and have access to data because that's the best way to do proper research. So, so no, my dad taught me when I was six years old. I grew up in this sort of South African, Scandinavian, libertarian, hippie family. I was like, lots, sons of freedom, like five kids, all the different careers. My dad told me when I was six years old, laws are for weak people. You can make up your own mind about how you want your life to be operated. And basically, if you're creative and you have creative talent, just go ahead and do your thing and probably money will come your way. I believed in that firmly and it turned out to be absolutely correct. So I probably made tons of money from making hit records. So I had hit records around the world. And even before I quit six years ago, I had two number one records in Korea that year as a songwriter. Now, if, if you're a successful songwriter producer for years, you start to make tons of money eventually. Okay. So you're on record you- companies. But, but, but today it's the lecturing and the consulting when I consult H&M, IKEA, Allianz, leading European large corporations about digitalization. They pay me big paychecks, right? Okay. So earlier in your adult life, you made your fuck you money from producing music that, that ended up being yeah. successful. Yeah. Okay. okay. I would definitely say 1998, when I enrolled the Stockholm School of Economics to lead the digital studies work there, and I sold my first record company, that's the day when I called the bank and had fuck off money in my bank account because I just sold the whole record company to Universal Music. Anyway. Okay, so so the yeah. academic the academic appointment that you've had for some time that's relatively trivial in terms of money and I guess yeah I mean my my philosophy my philosophy is about that academics is going to die and it's dying quickly politics is going to die it's dying quickly and old industry is going to die it's dying quickly we're living in a dramatic paradigm shift that means the internet is completely rewriting the rules of absolutely everything that's going on in the world okay that means a whole new power structure is going to emerge out of that. My first book 20 years ago was called The Netocrats. And it basically says it's a new class society we're seeing rising right now. Like you and I looking for antagonisms 
are superior. We are an upper class. The people who, who stay paranoid within their echo chamber, underclass. Okay. We see this constantly now on the internet that the way you react to the internet with all these tools being available for free to everybody is going to determine what kind of class you're going to end up with. Mm. So we, we've done this work for the last 25 years. And mm. basically now we're all seeing it coming true. Interesting. Okay. Mm. So I like I like the sound of this. So you and I are basically aristocrats of the spirit. We're aristocrats of antagonism. Yeah, we are. We are. I, I, I am a Nietzschean in the sense that I have to write a book on the new elite or books on the new elite, where they're going, where is their promised land, how they're going to get there. That's essentially what I do. My students, though, are often Marxists. They're the new Marxists. They're 25 years old. They fucking hate social justice warriors because they hate Rousseau. They hate victimhood cults. They're proud and they're strong. And they want to create a digital proletariat. Of course, they're my sons and my daughters. They, they want to kick me in the ass. So what they're going to do eventually when I'm done with my work is to move in and then create a philosophy. And how do you broaden this elite? How could possibly more people that have talents out there be nurtured and fostered so they can belong to this elite and follow to the promised land? That is what Nietzsche and Marx tried to do in the 19th century. They hated Rousseau. And, and Marx cannot be blamed for the mistakes that later happened. He would never approve of Lenin and Stalin, just like Nietzsche would never approve of Hitler. Okay, But Nietzsche and Marx need to be reinstated as formidable thinkers of power and of the heroic. So what we need more than ever today in contemporary society is to get rid of all this shit and this nonsense and the bullshit that's going on to find a road back to what I call the phallus. And for me, Nietzsche and Marx are the two key thinkers in that realm. Okay, it's excellent. We can definitely go deeper into the ideas there if you want. But if you don't, if you don't mind, I'd love to. I'd love to pause a little bit more on some of the, the logistics and the and the practical stuff because I think people find sure. it very people find this very interesting, and I think. Yeah. I agree with you for sure that it's increasingly possible. It's increasingly the order of the day to embark out on your own and and pursue this kind of radical aristocracy of the spirit where we can say fuck you to anyone we want. And I think mm. you're right. You're right that it's interesting because when you look out on the internet or you look out into the public sphere, which is essentially now the internet, there is this kind of um, class differentiation taking place where there are some people who will say fuck you to whoever they want. And mm -hmm. that does that does signal a kind of power, right? It does signal yeah. a kind of like these, like another example I think would be someone like uh, Nassim Taleb. I don't know if you follow him, but um, you know, oh, he's, he's a friend of mine. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm a big I'm a big fan of him. A lot of you yeah. know people, even people I know, don't like him because he's he's quite an asshole. You know, he's a, he doesn't give a shit about being nice to anyone. He doesn't care if people think he's except an his wife, and I love his wife. He's just <laughs> brilliant. There you go. Right. My point <laughs> is being he's a he's another brilliant example of this, where like you look out into the public sphere and the people who don't give a shit about being nice. They clearly are, uh, it's evidenced that they are a more powerful type of person, essentially. And I'm not, yeah. you know, tooting my own horn, but but this is a clear kind of cleavage that's opening up. You're either an institutionalized ass kisser or mm -hmm. you're a freewheeling shit talker who doesn't give a fuck what anyone thinks. And it's increasingly obvious the difference between these two. And I think you're right that it is essentially a class difference now where the people who can say fuck you to anyone they want are increasingly the kings of the public sphere. Is that right? Yeah, but it's in my work, we do something called nomadology, which is like we're trying to recreate the Ur religion that we all come from. The, the original ideas was like an Ur religion where we were nomadic. And we work then with scientists to do socioontology. It's a whole new science where you take data from millions of contemporary human beings to map what the original nomadic tribe looked like. We call this deep history because we can figure out how the original nomadic tribe functioned and how it was constantly on the move. 
then we pretty much figure out how our genetic makeup actually works because we're still in that mindset. So we only settled 5,000 years ago and went to peace and had tons of diseases and psychiatric disorders and all the other fuck-ups we live with today because we settled 5,000 years ago. So the vast majority of people want to still stay settled. The people who are going back to the nomadic are going to be totally superior. That's why you and I love Gilles Deleuze. He gets this mm. completely. And he was prophetic when he talked about this. So the nomadological is to try to understand how you move and how you move people, how you move ideas and how you move even physically, geographically to be a winner, right? So this is the kind of work we're doing. And when we look at these models, we're discovering that about 92% of the population are firmly women who love men and men who love women. We call them heterosexual men, heterosexual women. They're a bit boring, but 92% of the population belong to these categories. Even Camille Pogl agrees with me on this one. So he put the women in what we call the matriarchy in the inner circuit, which is densely populated. And they put the men in an outer circuit, which is over large areas where the soldiers and hunting and all that shit goes on. And the berry picking and the child rearing is basically in the circuit. Then we got the androgynous people that go in between. That's about 4% of the population. That's what it's required for a borderline. So the gay guys and lesbians have a role. They should not live in ghettos and just take tons of drugs. They should actually go back into society and claim, you guys need us because we are actually the go-betweens. Basically, when I do hmm. men's work and women's work, I said, any damn couple therapist in the world has to be a gay guy, right? Well, have you seen a straight guy serve you on an airplane? Never. Mm. You have to have gay guys and women for that. You have to have inner circle people for that. So the gay guys are like men in the inner circle with the women. The lesbian women are with the men in the outer circuit. They're go-betweens between the two. But there's also 4% left. The last 4% are what we call the shamanoid personalities. The shamanoid personalities are constantly on the move because they're at the very outskirts of the entire tribe, and they're the go-betweens between tribes. Mm. So... We just send these mad guys out into the forest and say, you can sit in the forest and cook your witch's brews and take tons of drugs and fuck whatever moves or whatever. You're mad. You're stupid. You're mad. You're hilarious. And they can take care of themselves. They're independent. They don't mind. You and I probably belong to this category. We call them shamanic caste. Now, most of the time in history, these shamans are pretty useless, unless you want to go out there and party before you marry or something. The shamans are out in the forest somewhere. But when we move into a dramatic change, like a paradigm shift, suddenly shamanic caste becomes absolutely essential. So they're no longer just executioners and whores and whatever you want to throw out there, but actually become powerful priests and diplomats and medicine men or whatever you want. So a priest is essentially a shaman who puts on a robe. And then he walks into the very village and declares a new truth or a new situation. Mm -hmm. And probably they don't listen to him. They throw rocks at him and he goes, oh, God, you're just people. Okay. And then he walks out in the forest again. And then they drag him back into the square when they're finally listening. And then mm -hmm. he's the prophet and he becomes the priest. And then he says, okay, this is what I said. This is what I meant. You didn't listen. And that's why you're in the mess. Mm. And that's exactly the sort of existential situation we got in the West today, that we got in North America and we got in Europe and the current mess we're in. It's an existentialist crisis because people didn't listen to the guys who warned us. Mm. So the last book is Digital Libido, and it starts with reference to Sigmund Freud's excellent book, Civilization and Discontents from 1930. It was the old Freud who warned us about Hitler and Stalin, who warned us about the havoc that was going to start. He knew hundreds of millions of people would die, and nobody listened to his warning. And luckily, he died in 1938 and didn't have to see the whole shit, right? The guy knew that. 
Hmm. So we're going back to him, of course, and we're going back to Adorno and these guys from the Frankfurt School from the 1930s, because they were smart German Jews who knew what was going on, and we're reading them, and then we're putting them into the new digital environment, and suddenly things start to make change. Hmm. So okay. this is what it means. To, so if, you, if you're going to look for the indie thinkers and we talk to them, like they, 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 we want to encourage them and mentor them right now, I would say define yourself on the map first. Are you shamanic, truly shamanic? 4% of the population are. Then you want to be outside of things. You want to have a distance to society. And the fact why the shamanoid personality is so great at spotting what people are up to is because you've always seen things from a distance. You're not involved in the gossip and the intrigues or, you know, the little fights that people are doing with themselves when they get stupid. You actually look at the world from a distance. And the philosopher is the ultimate shamanic personality because he's got the biggest distance of all. He needs to have the biggest picture. Hmm. So... If you are that type of person, you probably you probably have a messy sex life and you don't mind. You probably take tons of drugs and you don't understand why they're illegal, right? That's shamanic traits. If you're that kind of person, welcome to the club. <laughs> I think you're going to be the core of your indie thinkers that you're building. Interesting. Now, what about the larger mass of people who don't necessarily want to be shamans, but they want to they, – they look at all of the currently available institutional options like going into academia or doing research for a private – industry or whatever the case might be. And they see that these increasingly bloated, bureaucratized, kind of pacified and domesticated intellectual pathways are just, there's no hope for them anymore. And they're not interested in doing that either. What they really want is just the freedom to, to think and to do their research over time and to put that into the public sphere in an impactful way. Um, okay. what, what, what do you think about that type of of, of aspiration? What kind of advice okay. do you give to that type of person? Okay, let's look for the last 400 years and look back a bit here. We have two religions that we actually live with called individualism and collectivism, and they're both bad religions. They're now falling apart. The internet's all about tribal. That's how it works. It's a flat structure. You've got 8 billion people screaming at the top of their lungs simultaneously. They've all got a megaphone. That means if the world is a theater, nobody's left in the audience and everybody's on the stage. And nobody's realizing nobody's left to watch them. So everybody's pretending mm. they got an audience screaming at true. the top of the lungs. Yeah. And in America, I love America and, and I love working with the cognitive scientists and computer scientists in America at the moment. But if you live in America, you have to understand that the American state religion is essentially Cartesian individualism. That's not a winning formula any longer. Ne nowhere in the world. So if, if, if you're going to, you think the online world is all about your own, private personal sales pitch constantly. We're all tired of that. We're all sick mm. of the spam when people are trying to sell themselves all the time. The one thing we hate the most is LinkedIn. Everybody asks me about LinkedIn. It's just like, I don't look for a job. People call me. Well, what the fuck would I be in a whore site to, to expose my whoring? You know, it's just like, no, I hate LinkedIn. I don't want to be there. I don't want to be, you know, so, so it's just like at the end of the day, tribal is the way forward. So find your own tribe. Mm. A, a sort of precursor to indie thinkers, which is the more mature version of the same thing, was a Peter Lindbergh, who was a mm. key guy in Toronto. He's like, he wrote Nomadic Tribes. He's also John Favarkis and Jordan Peterson's shared little favorite guy. Him and I contacted each other last year. We set up a little network called the Intellectual Deep Web. It's just a simple mailing list, transatlantic, mm -hmm. to get the young guys, the next generation, after the Weinsteins and the Petersons or whatever, the next generation to connect with one another. And we're finding out that, oh my God, there's this whole new generation of guys like you, Justin, who are like younger than us, but are in Europe, in North America. They all speak English these days, can communicate with one another. And there goes these intense, deep debates on philosophy and history and everything and the current state of affairs and tip each other about books and 
And they're all asking the questions, are we going to write books? Are we going to do podcasts? Are we going to webcast? How are we going to express ourselves? I mean, these guys are going to be the new YouTube intellectuals, every one of them, right? Mm -hmm. So th that is so inspiring that a simple and mainless can do that. We, we had to get them out of Facebook because that takes active looking for something. Mm -hmm. Email is still a way of throwing something in your, in your face, but not as a sales pitch. Always is something attractive. Mm -hmm. Like if you remember the Internet to Deep Web, you, you can't deny the fact you're tempted to read all the emails because you can't deny the quality of them. Hmm. So if you look for that kind of quality of dialogue, then people will be attracted to what you do, even if they don't agree or hardly even get what you're talking about. That's not a problem. That quality is what you're looking for at the moment. And, and let's collaborate, because I love to support things like indie thinkers. But I also, having worked in the music industry for 25 years, I know there's so many people who are coming through the door with the dream of being discovered, of being the dream that they're talented. Right. Moderation is therefore the key. You've got to be really tough at the door, like a great nightclub. Mm. It's all about, no, sorry, I can't let you in. You're not good enough. We haven't proven yourself mm. yet, or you need a better track record or whatever, but we're not going to let you in. And sorry, your dad's money is not going to help either. Mm. The, the network has to be yeah. strong. And, and the stronger... The, the more adamant you are at the door of only letting genuine talent work hard in through the door and let it grow slowly, like you said, the mm. better off you'll be. Then indie thinkers would be brilliant. Yeah, well, that's nice to hear from you because that's essentially why right now, at least, it's invitation only. And and yeah. I have a, you know, somewhat, I have a somewhat, yeah, rigorous um, kind of review process. Now, what do you say to people who kind of aspire to have this sort of, um, carefree, nonchalant, freewheeling attitude and demeanor like you have, but let's say they're in grad school or they're, they have some sort of job where their boss, you know, is very uh, concerned about their internet speech. Uh, and so they feel blocked, right? They feel paralyzed. They feel like they can't really say what they think, let alone pursue a meaningful kind of creative research agenda in public because they just feel like they're going to get in trouble from many different directions. Uh, uh, what, what do you say to that type of person, especially a kind of young adult person? Get out, <laughs> leave. Yeah. Seriously, yeah. I mean, if you're going to sit there and, and cover your ass, I mean, it's like, hey, I, I take the debate. I, I, you will not find a Swede who doesn't know who I am. Let's put it that way. And that's not bragging. That's just the way it is. I'm a highly controversial public intellectual. The, the, the nicest thing I ever heard was a Russian who came up to me and said, if Camille Pagli went through a sex transition, she would be you. And I was like, thank you. That's like the most wonderful thing I've ever heard. I'm not afraid of speaking the truth. Now, it's not daring or bravery to speak the truth. It's all about strategy. Hmm. Get a base station. Have some kind of family life. I, you know, I've got a girlfriend since many years, but she lives with women. I live with men. We experimented and found a lifestyle that works. And hey, Sweden is the social experimental workshop of the world. You can basically innovate any way you like when it comes to family life. But family, base stations, and really trusted friends, you know, don't live alone. Have people around you because then you're more grounded and have more self-confidence. Okay, then you look at your professional career. You do some whoring, right? You do some jobs that are there for the money. Anybody does that. There's, there's certainly money thrown at you when you say yes to things sometimes, right? Okay, that's fine. But you always do that with the commentaries that I'm allowed to speak my mind at all times. And mm -hmm. if they're not comfortable with that, say no. Just mm -hmm. dare to say no. And, mm -hmm. and so that you are free to speak your mind at any given time. If you're not free to speak or don't dare to speak, you will never become a public intellectual. Just give up on it. You, you're not brave enough. Right. That's a no. thing. So, right. so right. I, I, instead of trying to find a way around that your boss doesn't like your word use, well, anybody's obsessed with tonality and etiquette. 
in 2019, you should fuck off. It's just like tonality and etiquette is not substance. It's not essence. It's just words. You know, it's like, a, mm-hmm. it's like I say to people these days, if you were in Paris in 1789, you would at least be in the streets of the revolutionary. You didn't want to be in Versailles. Now, Versailles was the place where everybody was obsessed with tonality and etiquette. Oh, did you hear that? Did you hear what she had said? She said the N-word. She said the G-word. America's full of this obsession with word use. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just cowardly. That's just cowards mm-hmm. to begin with. They're not going to get anywhere. If you even pay attention to the word police, you're lost, right? Right. Debate. Dialogue is all about substance, essence, reality, and the relationship towards reality and creativity on top of that. Right. Now, if you're not even in that discussion and you're obsessed with word policing and afraid of the word police, you're stuck in Versailles and the guillotine should gladly cut your head off because you don't deserve to be in the arena. You're not a winner. I think you said something really important in there, which was that ideally you should not even be paying attention to the word police. In, in yeah. other words, the way that I interpret that is, if your attention is properly distributed and you're focused on the right things, which is essentially some form, some form of radical truth telling, then you should be so obsessed with that and so focused yeah. on that in a productive way that you literally mm. don't even know what words are taboo today. You know, you don't even know what the changing fashions of of taboo words are, like whether you're supposed to say uh, person of color or colored person or Negro or, uh, you know, Indian or Native American, like these changing fashions of what's taboo. If, if, if you're doing things right, you literally don't even know what you're supposed to say or not supposed to say. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. That's why it's so refreshing when people ignore the rules. That's why Americans voted for Donald Trump. You literally mm. voted Cartman for South Park into the White House because you were so tired of the communication agencies running Washington, D.C. And you felt like they were just eerie robots called things like Hillary Clinton around. And somebody was just suddenly real. And, and even if it's been a disaster, and my God, I hate him for betraying the Kurds, you know, and things like that. And probably because of him, Iran's going to have a bomb next year. You know, he, he's a mess. He's a fuck up. He's fucking up the world at the moment exactly as expected. But I can see why people voted for him because he's just refreshing to somebody who was alive. And it was too stupid to play the rules and didn't know the rules or just ignore them and went off. That's human. Okay, that's what we need the tricksters right now. Damn, Jordan Peterson made an entire career of just fighting with some Canadian word police people. He's, 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 he's just this guy who wrote Maps of Meaning 20 years ago. And I was kind of shocked to suddenly see Jordan all over the place three years ago. But, but I get it because the young guys out there, especially so hungry for somebody to just stand up with a decent mind and speak the truth. You know, he's, right. he's not against transsexuals or whatever. He just said that this is getting idiotic, that this word policing is getting idiotic. You guys have not studied history. Like Camille Pagla reminded everybody, if you study history and you discover what decadence is, you discover the fall of an empire, what's that like? A society when it implodes and falls apart. And like we point out digital libido, it's always the return of Rousseau. Every time the damn Rousseau is back with his pump, his positioning and all that, Rousseau is Hitler, Rousseau is Mao, Rousseau is Stalin, Rousseau is damn all the damn social justice warriors and the alt-right included. They're all Rousseauans. They're all like victimhood cults, a poor little me. And it's so pity me. It's just like, wait, are you a grown-up or a child? Because if you're a grown-up, what would we pity you? All right, no, I'll it's take just your, words, right? I'll take, I'll take the bait here and push back a little bit on that because yeah. I think uh, the way I see Rousseau is a little bit more complicated. I think Rousseau is this kind of uh, really pivotal moment in modern Western history. And in some sense, Rousseau is responsible for 
a lot of what happens on the subsequent left, but also what happens in some degree on the subsequent right. Like I see him as this kind of really rich, like uh, forking point um, where so much comes out of the Rousseauian moment. And so to defend Rousseau a bit, because in a lot of ways, I've actually always admired Rousseau, what he what he represents that I think someone like you would and or should appreciate is that the the activity of kind of radically introspective, kind of scandalously honest, introspective truth telling. I mean, Rousseau is probably the kind of founding modern figure of this tradition where uh, uh, essentially, right? I agree, but every blogger is like that. And to be honest about it, to be a porn star is not that difficult. You know, (laughs) exposing yourself, uh, come on, that's just narcissism. And he was a grandiose narcissist. He traveled around Europe and, you know, borrowed money from everybody. And when he had kids, he put them in an orphanage right away. He couldn't care less about his own kids. Now, what kind of man is that? I'm not saying he should be a role model. I think crazy wisdom teachers can some of be be the best teachers you can have. And he writes brilliantly, and that's why he's an excellent enemy to go against. you got to understand that when you arrive in, in the 19th century, Hegel, Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud, they all hate Rousseau with a vengeance, and they see the problems he has created. So Marx has to redefine the left as a Marxist left. I'm a strong Marxist, and that's exactly why I'm against Rousseau. And I think the mistake the left did in the West was that they stopped reading Marx in the 1960s. They forgot Marx, just put him aside, got embarrassed by it, and went for the Rousseauian agenda instead, and ended up with intersectionality. Terrible mistake. That's why the left is dead today. It killed itself by taking on Laclau and Mouffe's idea of the hegemony theory, and suddenly we got intersectionality, and suddenly we got these different victimhood cults that are fighting for the hegemony, like who's the biggest victim today? Now, there is no phallic power in that whatsoever. There is no constructive mindset whatsoever. There's no creativity. There's no value being created anywhere. This is just a bunch of spoiled brats obsessed with their own narcissism, sucking the tit wherever they can find a tit. So they go for the state or they go for sponsors and they demand repercussions for whatever suffering they're going through. No, they will never rise. They're their own worst enemies. But while they are their own worst enemies, they will cause a lot of havoc. And the way it worked out was very simple. You need an abject. You need somebody to hate, to unify all these various victimhood cults, all Judith Butler's different victimhood cults. So you, you find a white heterosexual man. Okay, then it's only a question of time before the white intersexual man discovers that this is the new game in town. So he will stand up and say, no, I'm the biggest victim. Hello, old right. Right. They're all pathetic. Deleuze would have hated them. Nietzsche would have hated them. Marx would have hated them with a vengeance. He called them lump and proletariat. Marx hated self-victimhood. That's exactly why Marx exists. He exists as a reaction against Rousseau's fantasies and the tabula rasa. And, and whenever you have tabula rasa, you also have the idea that there can be one little boy in here who can actually decide what we're going to do with the tabula rasa and suddenly get damn Paul Pot. You know, Paul Pot took its PhD, 1967 at Sorbonne, on Rousseau, not Marx. Then he went home to Cambodia and killed two million people, starting with anybody who wore glasses. Hmm. That is pure Rousseauanism. Okay, so we have a very interesting question here from yeah. Gustavian in, in the YouTube chat. Uh, it's a super chat, so thank you, Gustavian, uh, for the contribution. The question is this. What would Mr. Bart say uh, to the 95% of the population who are not above 120 IQ, 
and who are bisexual cosmopolitans. So what if you're not a really smart bisexual cosmopolitan? What do you say to those people? Well, to begin with, I had this Nazi guy come up to me the other day and said there was something to IQ tests and there were racial differences depending on IQ tests. And then I looked him in the eye and said, you should be very careful of discussing IQ with somebody who obviously would beat you, beat the shit out of you in an IQ test because then I would shoot you because you're inferior to me. If that's the logic you mean, I'm not a Nazi, okay? To begin with, IQ tests only measure one thing, the capacity to solve an IQ test. As far as I'm concerned, it will not help you in a nightclub. It will help you in a bar. It will help you to get married. It will not help you with your career. It will not help you be socially successful. It certainly won't help you in interacting with the machine, which is increasingly the future of humanity. So you're, you're nothing. Okay. If you go to Mensa date, it's just like ugly people, Asperger's syndrome, nobody gets slayed, and nobody has success. So if this is about you being an intellectual, a public intellectual, independent, making your own money, being able to speak freely, Forget about IQ tests, okay? There's just nothing. So to begin with, uh, there are people who probably score 80 on an IQ test that are just wonderful people. There are people who score 150 on IQ tests that are probably just terrible. At the end of the day, I love to have a mix of people around me. I love the madness of some people. I love the stupidity of some people. I love the cleverness of some people. But if you have a rich human life, you surround yourself with a variety of humans, right? Mm. So at the end of the day, I think... The map I can give to people today when we work with the nomadology is that I can guarantee you had a role 5,000 years ago. I cannot guarantee you'll have a role in contemporary society because contemporary society is pretty fucked up and some people will be huge winners and some people will be losers. So your human value in a sort of timeless sense, I could guarantee you, your human value today is up to you. So that is the complexity, I would say. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm glad that 92% of people are fooled into becoming heterosexual men and women and breed, because if they didn't breed, there wouldn't be any humans. So I'm fine with that. Yeah, interesting answer. I'll pay taxes to support them. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I mean, my answer to that question is that in the ideally crafted community or what we in my part of the internet sometimes call the patch, you know, in reference mm -hmm. to this idea of patchwork, the ideally constituted patch would have a place for all people, including people who might have Down syndrome or be severely uh, you know, debilitated in some way or sick or ill. A, a properly constituted society is one in which, or, or community is one in which the, the people who are blessed with various gifts can uh, kind of cover or watch the back of people who are not blessed with those gifts. And as you kind of alluded to, Alexander, people who might score really low on an IQ test they often do have some sort of hidden gift that is not easily appreciated. And, and the ideal community would be a matter of the maximal kind of efficient identification of everyone's different gifts and making them uh, kind of combine in the collectively most fruitful and harmonious way. Yeah. And at the end of the day, we do value people who are fun and look great more than we value people who are boring and ugly. Sorry, but that's yeah. the way it works. Nothing to do with IQ. So, uh, you know, find your own place in your community, find your own tribe, create your own family, I would say. Create your own family today, and you'll be fine. And we did experiment in the 1930s with sort of removing the people who were sort of inferior, and we ended up with Nazism and Adolf Hitler at the top. wasn't a very good idea. Then we went back about 40 years and said that was a 
terrible idea. Let's not even go there because we just ended up with a bunch of idiots thinking they were superior, which usually what happens. That's Rousseauian, right? And what we've done since then, if we're honest about it, is that we've started doing something called abortions. And, and abortions essentially eliminating people who are not asked for. As a man, though, I gladly leave the abortion issue to matriarchs, older wise women, and the young women who are affected. I think abortion is one of those issues where men should just keep the shut the fuck up, right? Abortion mm. to me is a typical issue in a tribal context where you tell the young man, okay, whether you're going to give birth to this baby or not, or give birth to it three years from now, because women can have that mindset, you go and see an older woman, you discuss that with her, and then you make that decision. I think it's a typical issue where men should just stay out of it completely. But abortions, have, over the last 30, 40 years, had an effect on society. Certainly in Europe, you're also discovering America. Crime rates are down. Things have changed. Not because these aborted fetuses would have grown into criminals, but because they would have grown into situations where they weren't asked for or wished for. And if you're not asked for or wished for when you arrive in life, your life is going to be a lot more harder, and, and your, your, your chances of succeeding are going to be a lot lower. So overall, looking at the population, this is the way we sort of, in a sophisticated manner, are planning for to have a sustainable population, eventually about 10 billion people on the planet, make sure that planet works, and, you know, give birth to children that are wanted and, and will be loved when they arrive. It, it, I mean, it makes sense, right? It makes sense. It's pragmatics. It's interesting. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. particularly intrigued by your reference to the matriarchs. I'm curious mm -hmm. because it seems to me nowadays what's going on right now is the the women who are kind of running around with the most kind of vocal influence on the culture are not the, you know, kind of noble, admirable matriarchs that I think we would want to empower, but it's often, um, you know, quite, quite uh, bizarre, often young, often inexperienced uh, women with all kinds of strange kind of personal and political and career access to grind. So, I mean, how do you think we, how do we elevate the, the, the proper matriarchs into their, into their, into their proper, uh, feminine influence and kind of demote the 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 current kind of public digital tribe of 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 women who are often you know kind of promoting quite strange ideas for quite strange reasons. Well, it, it's all about post nineteen forty five. Nineteen forty five, we blew up the bomb of Hiroshima, and the world was a mess. And essentially, the patriarchal idea that men can lead society, which is, you know, very tribal, was gone, right? Because it led to Hitler and Stalin and 100 million people dead across the planet. So that opened up. Women have started making careers, but it also opened up for something we were not aware of, and that was youth worship. So exported from America in the 1950s, starting with James Dean and Marilyn Monroe and Elvis Presley and all that shit, was just the idea that youth are somewhat superior to old age. Uh, okay, mm. we store information outside of our brain. We've been doing it for the past 5,000 years. We increasingly do that, and that's why we don't respect wisdom. But wisdom is not just only knowledge. It's just not only having access to knowledge like your smartphone in your pocket. It's actually knowing how to process it and how to place it into a wider picture, and that's why the rediscover wisdom is going on at the moment because we lost that. Now, if we're going to rediscover wisdom, we have to actually get rid of youth worship. Mm. That means that we love the young for their energy, but the young must look for mentors and guidance. I did when I was young. I, I knew right away that to make a career, I needed mentors. And I'd be much smarter than the other kids around who believed in their own egos. I'd be much smarter mm. if I looked for mentors who could guide me, who'd been there before, done what I did, who I could actually test myself against and then do my own thing.
That is the natural way of things. Any culture anywhere in the world before the 1950s would have appreciated people of old age because the wisdom, that's exactly what we live till we're 80, 90 years old. You'd go to the elders and they would advise you what to do. Then you would make your own decision. That was completely lost in the 1950s when all this shit with the hippies and everything happened and the confrontation between old and new and the sort of aggressive antagonism, the colored America since then. It's really youth worship versus a perverted form of Western worship that's not wise. That's essentially the right and the left in America. So we have to understand that. Then we can go back to men and women. They discover that young men who run off and don't listen to the elders, they go wild and crazy. They become Islamists and all kinds of things and terrorists or whatever they want to do these days. We're going to have more of that, unfortunately, because young men today who sit in front of these the internet right now and they're angry because they just do computer games and they do pornography and they're lonely and they get more and more angry and the next wave of terrorism in America is not going to come from the Middle East. It's going to come from inside America, probably all right and alt left going after each other with bombs and drones and things. It's very, very likely scenario, right? Starting in Oregon or something. Women though with a more passive-aggressive mindset when they're frustrated means that they sit in front of the computers and start believing in their own narcissism. So what Mm. you did, for example, with Me Too, was that you suddenly had this army of so-called feminist narcissists, all with four or five different hair colors, narcissistic personalities, who thought that they were the, you know, the top of the heap, like they would be the wisest people on the planet all of a sudden, all they were 23 years old and knew nothing. And they declared the new truth, which is whatever they said had to be true, and whatever a man would say had to be a lie. Like if women couldn't lie, and if men could not tell the truth. Mm, that that right, was the logic. Right. So I, mm. I was one of the people in Europe who stood up and said, girls, I know dirty old men are nasty and all that. And by God, there's a lot of women who've tried to touch me throughout the years, but I don't care. But whatever, that happens, okay? There was, there was probably some rape rapes in there. They should take them to court and go the legal procedure. If you were seriously interested in helping women against men when it comes to sexual violence, then for God's sake, study law right? Going to law, right? I said that in public. What I then did was that I took older women who were silenced. Women mm. over 50 loved me for saying this. They were just like, we're the grandmothers. Like, and we love you. When we were feminists, the Scandinavia feminism has a long history, right? When we were feminists in the 60s and 70s, it was all about female empowerment and, mm. and equality and, and the fact that women contribute as much to society as men do. And we, we just don't want to be locked up with the kids. We actually want to make money and have our own lives and decide things for ourselves. Classical feminism, right? Me Too had nothing to do with that. Vic- Me Too was nothing but a victimhood cult that basically declared that women are weak and cannot take responsibility for themselves. And therefore, they're easily eluded or, or led astray by, by, by older men. And, and, and therefore, they must be protected. It was hysterical. Mm. So once we took the debate in Sweden, a year into it, we'd won the debate completely. All that's left of me to here in Northern Europe, especially in Sweden, is court cases. Hmm. Men suing, older men suing young women for lying and defamation. Court case after court case after court case after court case. The media house are being sued and they're all, it's, it's all falling apart because this hmm. whole lynch mob system temporar- temporarily existed cannot last it, it just it's just terrible and it was terrible for women hmm. it, so so, right. so it, it's not only the women it's not only the men it, it's the entire system the disrespect towards wisdom and the idea that if you're young you know everything right because now, yeah 
Right, right. Because now we have this kind of cult around kids. There's like the weird power yeah. personality personality cult of kids, like the Parkland kids and Greta Thunberg. It's like nowadays, if a if a teenager says something in the public sphere, we're supposed to all like worship it. Whereas my attitude is like, no, kids are stupid. Like that, that's what kids are. They're stupid, like almost by definition. And we need to bring back the kind of public consciousness that kids are stupid and they 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 don't yeah. deserve to be listened to. <laughs> God, it was some of my students who made up the whole Greta phenomenon. I used to write songs for a mother before. <laughs> it's a phenomenon coming out of Stockholm, right? right. Uh, it's kind of scary, but the thing with Greta Thunberg is that nothing wrong about the kid. She, she's a great kid. But sure. the, pro the problem with the phenomenon itself is that we allow a little kid to stand there and say cliches uh, as if they were deep, deep truths, right? Because mm. we're going to ignore them. That's the right. way it works. The system is well, going to ignore her. Like, oh, yeah, she said that. But at the end of the day, we couldn't really implement it. So that was just a you know kid who went on a school strike for a day. And my response to it all is that at the end of the day, the kids need to go to school to become engineers and solve the problem. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in ecotopianism, which is the exact opposite of environmentalism. It's just like we need technological solutions to solve a certain costly problem called climate change. It's mm -hmm. not the end of the world. It's not an existential threat. We're not going to be wiped away, but it's going to be really costly, mm. you know, change, adjustment of the planet itself and life on this planet. So for that costly adjustment to be avoided or to lower the cost of it, the sooner we can implement technological solutions to the problem, including building tons of nuclear power, to be honest about it, better off we are. That perspective is called equitopianism. And it's a natural response to environmentalist dogmas we have them currently because our environmentalism has gone crazy. Mm. And the great at the forefront and dogmatic take and the moralism of the whole thing and the total avoidance of real solutions and of facts, mm. environmentalism would totally lose it. It's just, just a, that's not the way forward, right? You, you got to stay with the facts and, and okay, got a problem. What would be the cost of solving the problem? How do we adjust the problem meanwhile? That's the only thing I'm interested in. And then you can remove this whole moralism around climate and environment once and for all, and we don't need any more Gretas. We certainly don't. And the hypocrisy surrounding Greta just killed it. It's just like I said to the kids, you know, my students said, yeah, you're going to put on a boat across the Atlantic. You're going to get tons of media attention. But wait a second. Everybody who writes that boat are going to fly there. And all the meetings where you're arranging this little jippo, you know, are flying to their meetings. It's the easiest thing in the world for an alt-right guy in America to just expose the whole hypocrisy of the whole thing, and you killed it. That's exactly mm. what happened. Mm. You can't now, do that any longer. You can't do that. It just, it just doesn't work. It, the algorithms will come back and chase you down when you lie and, and you're deceitful to people. And, and the only way to behave now is to go for two things, truth and quality. Mm. Yeah. The, algorith the, algorithm, the algorithm is a phallic structure that comes to give order to the chaos. So it's a phallic thing. It's like a phallic mechanism we constructed. And as the algorithms get smarter and smarter and the more algorithms that compete with each other, we're going to go for the best one. And the best mm. one is the one that points us directly to truth without manipulating any facts mm. and shows truth and quality. And if, you get, yeah, and if you get the truth and the quality algorithm, if it arrives on you, you never, ever have to advertise ever again. It's a death of marketing. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting because yeah. I've I've made some comments recently about the trade-off between quantity and quality. And I think at, at the current moment when the algorithms are still quite inefficient and yeah. there's so much noise in the system, I've, yeah. I've made some arguments in, recently that 
there's a, there's a case to be made that quantity has a quality all of its own in, in this regard. And that actually you should, because I meet a lot of people today who are like bloggers or video makers or whatever, and they're struggling with being kind of perfectionist. Like they're, they're not producing that much because they want it to be really good. So they want it to be so good. You know, the perfect is the enemy of the good and they want it to be perfect. So they hardly even produce anything good. Right. So mm. I actually have, I've been making the case lately that right now, the way the internet works and the way psychology is distributed, uh, you should really be optimizing for, for quantity and consistency. You should be put, you should be making as much as you possibly can on as yeah. many platforms as possible, because in a way it's, it might sound very different than what you're saying, but I think it kind of converges because mm-hmm. to quality in the public sphere today, in a, in a, in a public sphere that's so fragmented and mm-hmm. chopped up and algorithmically divided, not just by one algorithm, but by many, right? Um, to get through all the noise, you have mm-hmm. to be putting out signals um, frequently. It, it's, only, it's only through that frequent signal emission that you actually make any type of dent in the many eyeballs that are divided and fragmented o- over such uh, different spaces. So, part, yeah, part, I think... Part, part two, but uh, I would say this. Look at the medium itself. Look at Marshall McLuhan, absolute key. If anybody inspired our first book, The Endocrats, besides Karl Marx, it was Marshall McLuhan. Okay, mm-hmm. so look at the medium itself. How does it operate? The great thing with the internet is that it doesn't have any in, in, in shortage of territory. So you can put tons of shit out there, and if it doesn't fly... Nobody will right. bother because the algorithm will kill it for you and hide it somewhere. So I agree with you. It's the perfect medium for experimentation, right. but that's because the medium operates that way. So all, again, mentorship, look at the medium itself. How does it operate? So the great thing to do is to put tons of shit out there and experiment and say that you're experimenting. Call yourself an experimentalist. Say that I go into different dialogues with people. I have podcasts and chats and I write a few texts here and there. I'm trying different media. And why don't you follow with me and give me feedback on it and do the same thing? This is what you're doing, which creates the real value of your indie thinkers network. It's very smart because actually these guys it's, it's not about co-promoting each other and say, thank you for the ad. That's just my space nonsense. Right. We've discovered right. that that's bullshit. It's really about learning from one another. Like if you, if, if you figured out that you should actually have this number of publications or, or lower them right. or higher them or whatever and, and make more effort on quality right now, or maybe at a certain stage when you need the break, you put more quantity out there, and because you got a charm, you're a new name and a new face, people tolerate that. Then you come to a certain stage, you're probably wiser to publish less stuff and be more qualitative about it. Right. But you're right. I think the medium allows for the experimentation and to put shit out there, tons of it. I personally do myself. I do a lot of podcasts in different languages. but uh, And I expect you know the people who are interested, they will follow me, and they do. And then when I hit it right, Mm. When he, I really had it right, it goes viral. Boom, right. goes through the roof, right? And the right. viral things are obviously the ones that stay. If you're going to look back at what I produced 10 years from now and look back at where you and I have been involved from 2015 to, say, 2025, you look at the 2026, all the viral ones are going to be at the top of the algorithm, and we're going to have an enormous, fantastic score because we mm. did experiment, we took the chances, and the quality was there. Yeah, that's a really good way to think about it, because also what it highlights is, and this is something I've also been saying a lot recently, is all the shitty stuff you make is just going to disappear. It's going to be it's going to be forgotten and ignored. Like that's the only real punishment of making crappy content or doing an experiment that fails or that ends up being stupid or undesirable. It just goes to the bottom. It just gets forgotten, ignored. And that's not much of a penalty. So who cares about that? No, I, and some of it will go to the bottom at first. And then somebody will discover sure. discover sure. that three years later, people finally get it. Or suddenly by being referred to by somebody else, wow, it goes through the roof. 
the, the thing is this, as a songwriter, I, I always get asked, so do you write a lot of songs? Or do you write a few songs? Mm. And I said, the neurotic guys only write a few songs and they're never very successful. Okay. Mm. The psychotic guys write new songs every day. <laughs> so, okay. Psychotic neurosis, not very good ideas. What you do is that you spend a lot of time writing a lot of songs, only the basics, and then you just leave them aside. And then mm. a month later, you listen to the 10, 10 songs you wrote and discover nine of them are actually shit. But the 10th one has magic to it. And you say, mm. what the fuck? How did that song come about? Where did I get that idea from? Beautiful. I want to work with it. And you get lost about working with it. And because you can, you can afford to throw away nine ideas and work mm. on that 10th idea. And it's brilliant. Mm. You know, I say, mm -hmm. if you do it to psychedelics, it's a bit like taking ketamine. Because when you discover when you do ketamine, you think all oh, everything that goes to your brain is fantastic because it's new and weird. And then the next time you look through it, nine of the 10 ideas are crap. But the 10th idea really is brilliant, right? So right. that's why artists love it. They love that that's experience. Yeah. So yeah. one out of 10. Okay. If you try to have two great ideas among 10, you're probably going to have zero good ideas among 10. But mm. if you go for the one out of 10, uh, don't spend too much time. It's like you take something and throw it on the wall and see if it sticks. Yeah. That's, Same that's way. Really, that's really the, the, only, the, the only thing here is that we might as well put it out there. We don't have to decide, you know, if that's a right. podcast or something is good. We can just ask our audience out there or the people we're involved with and their response and the algorithm on top of that will determine what's viral. And, and I'm right. sure the people who experiment the most right now are going to be the winners three to five years. Hell yeah. Right on. And shout out by yeah. the way to Robert, Robert Chesick. Thanks for the super chat, Robert. That's cool. Um, mm -hmm. What are you currently working on right now, Alexander, that is um, you, kind of your main focus creatively or intellectually? Okay. Uh, the first book is Synthism. Creating God in the Internet Age. The second book of the current trilogy is Digital Libido, Sex, Power, and Violence in the Network Society. And after Synthesis and Digital Libido, we're going to complement them and, and write. We're about to start writing the third installment to complete what we call the Grand Narrative Trilogy. So when wow. nobody else dares to write the big phallic story or where we need to go. Uh, we sat down and said, since we've written about that, it needs to be written for quite a while. And everybody else is talk about how much it's needed and how dangerous it is, but still needed. Uh, maybe we are the philosophers should write that book. So it's going to be the Exodus book, especially going to be about the new elite, that the new global nomad, the new elite that will step out, out of this whole maelstrom called digital and will basically rule the world uh, as, they, as they so much. Oh, yeah. And basically yeah, describe like why it. they are the winners and how they won so they could hopefully be models for everybody else. That's the work yeah. we're going to do in the next book. And we hope to also inspire them because I think the awareness of you being successful can increase your success even more Definitely. and thereby create even more value. I don't mind at all to promoting yeah. the Nietzsche and Ubermensch here. I'm, I'm actually totally for that. So there you go. Oh, for sure. No, I, I thought what you were going to say and what I'm really interested in right now is how any bit of success that anyone is having in this in this frontier, sharing mm -hmm. it is is so important because it, it it allows other people to also take more risks. It lowers the threshold for other people who are kind of who currently see themselves on the margin, right? There are probably thousands of people out there who have some sort of independent, creative, intellectual project. But they're and, and they're they're ready to take some type of plunge. Who knows? It could be different in different cases, right? It might be they're just on they're on the cusp of saying fuck you to their boss, or they're on the cusp mm. of trying something bigger and better, whatever. There are so many different margins that different people are at right now. And any little bit of success that people have on this frontier of of radical kind of digital nomadism, as you say, 
any bit of success, you have you are absolutely ethically obligated to share it as far and wide as possible because you don't know how many people might benefit from it. Uh, in, yeah, in, in and it's fun. It's fun. I, yeah, I, I, you know, I expect to get credit for philosophical concepts that I in, in, invent, but I also give credit to other guys for for the inventions, and that, that's all you need to do. And, and it's shared. Ideas are shared to begin with, and 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 and. and yeah, that's how it works. And that's wonderful. And it's sweet and it's funny. I love it. So it's just, it's co-creation. All the way it's co-creation. And, oh. and the people who get what you're doing and can actually add value to what you're doing are your, also your future collaborators. That, that's yeah. how you create community these days. That's how it works. Yeah, and uh, the first thing to understand is that the old power structure is dead. Politics is now ironic. In the book, The Netocrats, in the year 2000, in chapter six, we predicted that very soon America is going to elect the reality TV show star as president because politics will be ironic. Politicians can still disturb and destroy, but they cannot create value any longer. We all know politics is over. It's just theater now. It's just media theater, especially among old media. The rest don't care. So politics is over. Academia is over. The old industry is over. Mass media is over. They just pretending they're still alive. They're zombies now. It's an it's entirely new landscape ruled by digital. Digital also going towards augmented, meaning digital is going to take over the physical world. And we're sitting in our laboratory studying biohackers right now. You know, these nerds who go to the gym, essentially, because they're the first people on the planet who are online 24 hours a day. Well, mm. Of course, everybody will be online 24 hours a day. When you sleep, yeah, why not measure your heartbeat or whatever? You know, there's, there's nothing stopping us from going completely digital. So digital, in, digital has only just started. Are you in your laboratory right now? It's kind of a laboratory here, yeah, with three guys living together in this space. It's in central Stockholm. So it's like a, a, an urban monastery. They call it an urban and monastery. Are all three of you, the people you live with, you're all kind of creative intellectuals working on things together or what? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Interesting. Yeah. So one of the guys is the research director. He runs the research team. He travels with me most of the time around the world. Love him to bits. He's like my kid brother. The other guy's an engineer, and and he's, he he needs to live with us because we are going to celebrate engineers in the new book. So I, I want to get into the mindset of why you become an engineer. Why do you want to build stuff all the time? Because mm. that is that is the hero. That is the Marxist Nietzschean hero of our age. Mm. Is the cultural engineer. So we're gonna celebrate the culture and ideas that epitome of meritocracy. So, so I, I want to go into these young guys' mindsets who become engineers. And and if an engineer today studies art and psychology and history besides technology, mm. God, the world's open. I mean, it's the world's your oyster. I mean, these culture engineers are gonna take over and rule the world. That's the next right. twenty to thirty years. Absolutely. I'm sure you recall in uh, Deleuze's postscript on the society's control, you know, he, he, he doesn't give many prescriptions or suggestions on what to do, but there, there's a, a very potent line in there where he talks about uh, jamming and viruses and piracy mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. possibly he kind of seems to indicate that these are the kind of leading prospects for embarking on significant kind of revolutionary political action, essentially, in the digital age. And that would essentially mean, I think, what you're talking about, which is combining a knowledge of history and aesthetics and culture and sociology with hack, actual hacking, like actual creation of technical systems to rewire ourselves and the people around us and, and the public at large. I love the hackers. I mean, 
the Netocrats, when we wrote in 2000, inspired Rick Falking and my friend to start the Pirate Party. So the Pirate Movement came out of Sweden, too. So, oh, really? it, yeah, it failed eventually, but it was bound to fail, but it was still yeah. fucking interesting. So we can yeah. learn a lot from it. It was just, just an early sign of anarchist going into the old system. It only failed because it became a political party. But it did so. It just, 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 just screwed the system up and warned them about what was to come. And if you look at China, for example, the, the Chinese Communist Party, and I hate their guts, they even pulled 3 million people to basically try to censor and control China. And they love our ideas about a censocracy, this idea that if you get censors everywhere, machines everywhere that are connected with human senses, you get a censocracy. They want to build a censocracy, but as a tyranny with a little boy called Xi Jinping at the top. Okay, I don't mind the sociocracy. I just don't have a little boy controlling it, like he's a pharaoh of Egypt or something. I want it to be plural, and I want the people to actually have, you know, have the right to throw the guys out who leads the system, because otherwise it's actually unsustainable. So then you go to Taiwan, and, and the kids in Taiwan that you don't hear much about, they're sitting inventing these new apps to help the kids in Hong Kong get around the censors. Now, I can't think of anything more fun if you're young today than to be in the streets of Hong Kong and use these apps to get around the censors in China. Because mm. contrary to what's widely believed in the West, I think a lot of kids in China actually are finding out what's going on in Hong Kong, right. especially in Shenzhen and Shanghai. And I think the leaders in Beijing are terrified. This is not what they expected at all. They expected everybody just fall in their place in a confusion way and just you know submit to the leader or whatever they expected. But I think China is actually very unstable. And I've got great hopes for the kids in Hong Kong. And to begin with, if the Chinese roll in the tanks in Hong Kong now, you know, the rest of the world should cut China off completely. You know, it really should because they, we got it. We got to defend the right for these kids to show what they do. And, and I'm very hopeful, very enthusiastic about what they're doing. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, a bit of a change of gears, but do you ever mess with TikTok? <laughs> The Chinese social network? Yeah, no, 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 no. Listen, listen, I worked enough in China, in Shanghai, to not trust anything that's Chinese. Mm. Okay? If you don't want your data in the Chinese Communist Party central computer mm -hmm. and want them to know everything about you, uh, avoid right. any Chinese products that has a data stream connected to it. Right. One of the Just an advice. You yeah, can use yeah. Korean and Swedish products. I mean, I'm a bit insecure about American products too. Uh, yeah, I know NSA are probably pissed off with Google and Google and I redirecting the traffic around America. So they're not dependent on the NSA because we don't want these authorities to have our data. We just don't want that. It's okay yeah. with the tech giants because they depersonify the data. But, you know, mm -hmm. when it comes to governments, old traditional governments, they get more and more desperate to have access to our data. We don't want that to happen. Stay yeah, out. That's, a, that's probably wise advice. One of the most impressive and kind of sketchy uh, Chinese operations I'm familiar with, which you might be familiar with also from your experience with academia, is the Confucius Institutes. Do you know this story? Mm -hmm. you know these, in, yeah, people who are listening might not know, but um, basically the, the Chinese Communist Party has these academic satellites pretty much installed throughout the Western countries, throughout the Western universities in the, UK, in the US and the UK, uh, many big and even prestigious, you know, uh, American universities and British universities and other, I think other European universities have these institutes called the Confucius Institute. And the Confucius Institute is essentially sponsored by uh, China. And mm -hmm. what a lot of, but what a lot of people don't know, and they're very good at keeping this under wraps is, you know, from the outside, you walk past, the, you know, the Confucius Institute at Harvard University or University of Southampton, wherever it might be, they look like just another academic research unit or, or institute it's it's totally indistinguishable but what people don't know is that they're actually like s seriously governed by kind of chinese politics and chinese chinese rules the, the rules and the norms of the chinese communist party 
So like the people in the in the Confucius Institute, including often Western grad students or Western academics who are hired to work in these institutes and do research in these institutes, they're subject to normal, traditional Chinese political censorship within yeah. Ameri- within Western European and American universities. And mm-hmm. mo- a, a lot of people don't even know this. I mean, it's like it's it's hiding in plain sight, but it's it's pretty outrageous. Yeah. And, and you know what? If you go to Chanchen, you've got pictures of Deng Xiaoping on the walls everywhere in the tech companies there. It's because they love Deng Xiaoping. And he was moving China towards a more plural society. Yeah, Tiananmen Square happened, all that. But, but you know, at the end of the day, they did move China towards something more plural because Deng Xiaoping was convinced that plural is more sustainable than tyranny. Just, just for the simple pragmatic reason, not moralistic or anything. People were shocked when Xi Jinping declared that he would be dictator for life a couple of years ago, right? It's just like, what the fuck? Are we going to have Kim Jong-un from North Korea leading China? China didn't need that. It wasn't necessary at all. It's a kind of, it's something eerie about Xi Jinping. It's not even a Confucian dictatorship, you see. It's a Taoist dictatorship in a way. So he believes that this Jing and Yang dance that is going to make China creative is going to be led by him and him alone. It's like a boy of Egypt pretending that you're going to create a Silicon Valley with Turia. <laughs> and, and with 5G being built out, 6G being built out, they're making these deals with the Chinese tech companies. It goes something like this. If we get all your data, we don't care what you do. Mm. So if you want to do like your advanced research on embryos or whatever you want to do and do synthetic biology and create the next generation of med tech and it's going to come out of China – then Chinese patents will certainly rule the world. And that's probably what China going to do and where they're going to make most of their money be really influential. But if I get, if I get six, ten, six, 10 years from now and i got a private health insurance and I want to go somewhere in the world to get cured and treated, I will definitely go to Bangalore or Bangkok and be treated by an Indian or a Thai doctor because I can't go to China because they probably kidnap and take my kidney, right? So the Chinese don't understand that despite all the hard work they do and this effort to be like superior to everybody else and be the top of the league and be the most prominent culture in the world, the most innovative, they're, they're creating a relationship with the outside world. We don't trust them. It's like total assholism. So it's just like, why would we trust a guy who obviously treats his own people like shit, right? So it's like they don't get that. It's, it's like they, that's why they don't, I don't think they understand Hong Kong. Hmm. And if I have to choose yeah. between Taiwan and China, I would choose Taiwan anytime, right away. It's the future. Absolutely. Must be. Right. Well, I think they might be making a wager that kind of just a brutal authoritarian intelligence maximization is going to win the global race to kind of, you know, uh, international AI supremacy. And I think they're kind of wagering everything on that. Like they're not going yeah. to try to play this game of transparency, this kind of these Western liberal norms. I think they're wagering that they can actually just choose to ignore all of that, let the other countries in the world kind of not trust China. But if they double down and, and continue to double down on just brute intelligence maximization, you know, uh, genetic engineering and all these different types of things that they're probably doing more aggressively than we are in the West, I think they're just gambling that they're going to win and they're going to be basically uh, impossible to contest. Yeah, it's, it's kind of if China creates the first artificial kidneys and livers that actually work for transplantation, uh, which is very likely they do something like that. They, they think they can then trade that for us keeping quiet about them treating their own population like shit. That's essentially right. the attitude of the Chinese Communist Party. And they love the idea of this insocracy. They think they can literally control everybody in the society. I'm more personally into that 
since so many people are being punished by the social credit system already in China, you've got a few million Chinese people already who can't even buy a flight ticket online because they said something like they, they talked to Justin Murphy and Alexander Bard and therefore they're bad yeah. or whatever. So, you know, if you've got a few million people t- pissed off like that, uh, they're not just going to go into hiding. Eventually, they're going to find each other. Mm. You know, and, and when they yeah. find each other, you're going to have people who really hate you. And how in the long run can you keep this sort of Taoist tyranny going, the same thing as planning, unless you have like millions and millions of Chinese people are opposed to it. It won't work. I don't see it as stable. I think it's incredibly unstable. I think Russia is unstable because of Putin personally. I think America has certain instability to it because of the conflict between, you know, the flyover states and the coasts and the alt-right and alt-left is part of that. Um, but I think China is really unstable, way more unstable than people expect. Mm. Right. I think I agree with that. The, it's a and my, huge yeah. And my friends in Japan and Korea and India agree with me. So if you talk to people in Asia who are much more familiar with Chinese culture and Chinese history than Westerners are, they all agree. They, they don't see China sustainable. And because it's not sustainable, they're afraid of it because an unsustainable system can very easily uh, react aggressively militarily to defend itself. That's right. Yeah. I think generally people significantly underestimate the risk of war also between uh, China and the United States. I think that 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 probability is much higher than people think. I mean, I'm not saying it's super high, like 50%, but, um, you know, it's it's not trivial. And I think people don't really appreciate that. I mean, in the, in the international relations literature, which I'm familiar with, uh, you, you know, I studied international relations in my PhD. And one of the kind of most robust findings uh, in, around the question of, of war is, this idea that one of the kind of most explosive situations in a global system is when one superpower is declining and another superpower is in, in yeah. increasing essentially. Yeah. Um, in, in that transition, um, it, it, that transition is kind of most rife of all situations for, uh, yeah, interstate war between, between those two powers. And I, that, that does essentially seem to be what's happening. I mean, I don't know about you, but I guess I do pretty much subscribe to the view that, uh, the West and the United States in particular is pretty much in a state of probably irreversible decline. I mean, I'm hopeful that mm-hmm. I would love, I would love to be convinced otherwise. And I'm going to, as my, as an, as an American, I'm going to play my part to, uh, you know, do what I can, but I think objectively it looks like we are in a, a state of irreversible decline. Do you agree with that? Or what do you think? Yeah. About no, I do. I do. I work across the world and, and yeah. I get much more inspiration working in Nairobi or Dubai these days than I do working in America or Europe, to be honest about it. And, and th- there's, there's contentment. I mean, Europe, it's, it's about, we got Spotify, we got Skype coming out of Scandinavia here and, you know, but the few unicorns coming out of here are nothing compared to America and compared to Asia. And, and the next wave will be deep tech. Yes, France and Germany has always educated great engineers to be part of that. But why would they, why would they, you know, literally sign their companies to the French and German markets with high tax rates and things like that here where they can actually literally move these companies to anywhere in the world? I think the future belongs to the city states. I think it belongs to places like Dubai and Singapore. And, and the people I meet there are the people who are the real winners today. The netocrats I interview now are like young Iranian American girls who moved to Dubai, married a Russian oligarch, runs a real estate company, has two perfect kids, 29 years old. The kid already speaks four languages fluent to win a six because of a household robot. You know, the, 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 these girls will take over the world. 
They took over the world. They, they, they are the nitocrats that we talk about. They can come from anywhere on the planet. They're global nomads. They move anywhere they like. They sort of step away from all this screaming that's going on. They're more voyeuristic. They're not exhibitionistic at all. They don't need to expose themselves. They're actually more powerful by not doing that. But I love them, and I love to sit with them, and I see how Nietzsche's Ubermensch, and I see how Marx dream of the real proletarian who beats the shit out of the capitalist by being better. You know, mm. I, I see the proletarian. I see the Ubermensch in these people and how they live their lives. And, you know, when you come to the, the, the real shit test, when you sit and talk to this Iranian girl in Dubai, and it's New Year's Eve, you drink champagne, and then you just go over to her and you say, after all, Dubai's run by Sheikh. It, it's kind of a dictatorship. Yeah? Yeah. So what if he turns against you and your family? Oh, no problem at all. We, we got a plan. You know, within 10 hours, we pack everything and move to Singapore. Mm. Of course she's thought of that. I mean, it, it's the tax rate is what, 4% or something? You know, her bank account is huge already and, and she looks great and she can, she can have a great, she will have a great life. And to me, these netocrats, they really have understood the power of the digital globalized world and they're using it to own advantage and they're all going to live in these city states. The, the idea right now is not to get a lot of junk space around you and have to support a big countryside like America. You know, has to support a poor, poor and poor and junk space in between the big cities. But actually, and it's not even the biggest cities that are going to be the winners. It's the smart cities that are going to be the winners. They tend to be smaller, more clever, have the best solutions, and they basically create themselves sort of a gated community, but on a city scale. Interesting. So you think that, that is the future? That is the future. Not the empires. No, no. The city states are the future. Right. So that's really interesting. So you think the place to be right now is places like Dubai with uh, Iranian expats who are just kind of living digitally in this very kind of intelligent and flexible way? Yeah. And say Hawaii goes independent. What are other places where you can have a pleasant life? You fly into an airport, you have a good life there, you feel you're protected, you pay low, good tax rate, you pay fees for everything else you use. You've got privately, you're insured with everything you want. And insurance, by the way, is basically just get the critical number of people around you you need to be insured, say 70 people. You insure each other within your own system, insurance industry dead and over. That's it. Hmm. All the next generation of tech startups are going to look into these pragmatic, smart solutions. Like, what is the critical number you need to be insured? New insurance industry, old insurance companies, dead and over. Digital locks, like the digital doorbells, like they open up your home completely. Kills, you know, retails dead and over because you, you will literally have people walk all the way into a refrigerator to a bed, fix everything. Because you can trust thousands of strangers walking into your home where you know who they are. It's no longer a problem, right? So, so that's where deep tech is going. That's where we're going now. We have the data and we have the flows and we begin to understand we're going to keep them forever. And we register everything with blockchains and keep it forever. And, and, and this will create a whole new society. And the people who are riding on this wave right now are the winners. And why would they stay in places that are falling apart, homeless people everywhere and corrupt governments and dysfunctional politics and, and a lack of trust in the community? Hmm. Why would you stay there? Yeah, that's really interesting. Are there other examples other than Dubai uh, that, that come to mind as hotspots for this type of living? Singapore for the Chinese. Mauritius is becoming the same thing for the Indians. Now we toured India. The wealthiest Indians we met were all people who came out of Mauritius and they had their fortunes there. And that's where they got their Indian companies registered. Mauritius is becoming the Indian version of what the Singapore is to the Chinese. New Zealand is one of these countries. And I'm working, I work with governments in Estonia and Slovenia here in Europe because I like to work with these small countries where you've got a city like Tallinn, you've got a little countryside. You know, it's kind of a city with a garden. 
you don't have any heavy costs or any problems there. You've got what, one and a half million people to deal with. And you walk into a room and you can make decisions because the 10 people in this country who make the decisions are in the room at the same time with you. So you can have an idea. And they, they look at the idea and say, yeah, we, we could be the first country in the world with free Wi-Fi to all citizens. Great, right? So you create Skype then. Okay, that's Estonia for you. And Slovenia is one of these countries that I'm interested in. Too. Israel, magnificent country. Imagine that Israel is spending 50% of their entire GDP on the military and still beat the shit out of everybody else, right? Mm. How do you become an Israeli Jew? You, you, you get to know Israeli Jewish families. You walk into their home, strong matriarch at home. She rules the house. Guy, father, patriarch. What does he do? Military and technology rules the world outside. That is strength. That is a strong culture with a strong inner circuit home and a strong outer circuit to protect and provide. Works. That's nomadology and practice. I'm terribly impressed with Israeli Jews. And I'm terribly impressed with the Parsis of India, you know, the Zoroastrians in India. They're what, 150,000 people in total? They own half the country. Mm. They're the wealthiest people on the planet. No other ethnic community on the planet has more wealth, higher education, more overachievement from their kids, or any measure you would like to have than the Parsis of India. They even bit the shit out of the Jews of America. Mm. Right? Now, how do you become that kind of community? Because you have a religion that has a value that believes in the phallic and believes that achievements will be rewarded. Mm. So instead of consuming today, invest, 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 and invest in yourself, invest in your kids. And all your kids will go to Harvard and Stanford or whatever because that's what the Parsi kids do in India. Mm. So in, in strong matriarchy, strong patriarchy, the problem in all systems is weakness. And when you pointed out when you said if China and America would go to war with each other, it's because one of them gets weak. Mm. If both get weak, then war is probably unavoidable. The reason why the Middle East has been a huge war zone over the past 30 years is simply because of weakness in the system. Weakness. Right. Weakness is always the danger. A strong system is sustainable and doesn't really have a need to attack anybody else because it is a strong system. Right. Well, this is like Spinoza's uh, notion of the devil, right? Like the devil yeah. is not the devil is not or Satan. Satan is not some big, powerful, bad per force, right? Satan or the devil is just impotence, essentially. Spinoza is Zoroastrian because he was taught by Moroccan Sufis. Sufism is Zoroastrianism meets Buddhism. It was exported across the Muslim world. And that's why all the other Muslim scholars hate it because it's alien to Islam. It's just basically Zoroastrian disguised as Islam. So it has a strong Buddhist element too, but it's Zoroastrianism, right? So the Moroccan Sufis taught this little Portuguese Jewish guy, Binosa, he went off to Holland. He was totally alien compared to anything else that anybody in Europe had ever thought. That's why we love him to bits. But he brought that kind of monist, one substance, many attributes, strength, and joy thinking to European philosophy. And we're forever oh, yeah. grateful. Hegel and Nietzsche pointed to Spinoza and said, we are his heritage. Hmm. Forget about oh, Descartes yeah. and all that. It's, it's Spinoza that inspired Hegel and Nietzsche. Yeah, me too, for sure. Now, oh, yeah, we love him to bits. Definitely. Yeah. And where are you based now? I don't know if you said. I'm based, uh, we have a base station in Stockholm, Sweden. On Saturday morning, I'm off to Costa Rica. I'm going to spend the next six weeks in South America. We're basically traveling all the time. It's just great to have a base station somewhere in the world where you got the laundry and, you know, the post and the official address and you registered and all that. So we're a bunch of guys who decided to make Stockholm, Sweden, a base station. But uh, as far and as we're we travel all the time. And when you say we, are you talking about the guys you live with, your lab there? 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, the team. And, yeah, and you, and when I asked you what your current focus is, you said the next book is—is is that what you're working on for the most part now? Well, it's. Or are you on tour, or what are you doing? Yeah, I'm a lecture tour spring and fall lecture tour constantly. The winters I go off to the tropics, and that's usually when I get a chance to read up on stuff. Shijik's latest book is I'm reading right now and getting into what's going on, and and then write and write whatever I'm writing on at the moment. So I'm. Focusing on the sixth book is going to take us the next three years or something before we finish it. We also write in both Swedish and English. We decided to write in two languages because you think better that way. Uh, so, so that's got to be finished. Once that's finished, then that trilogy is finished and we can remove that. But it, it's more like the books are increasingly becoming the summaries of the work we're doing. So mm-hmm. both trying ideas like I do now with you here is a way of trying ideas and getting people involved in ideas and get feedback on ideas to then finally when I squeeze it into the books and the nitty-gritty details are there so that I can tell my students okay if you really want to go deep you need to read and study the books properly right that's the only way to do it but right. all the other media is available that's a good part model. Of yeah. that's yeah. like a good model for essentially getting the most value out of the various things that you're doing by kind of repurposing them repurposing them and collecting them and condensing them in different ways like this. Uh, you should, you should let me come on tour with you sometime. I don't have, I can do whatever, man. I'm like open to crazy proposals. Well, you know, just the dialogue. So, I mean, you're a great guy. How old are you, Justin? I'm 33. It's nothing. So yeah, I'd love to be a dirty uncle for now. So yeah, I do. You're great. You're great. You're great, Justin. What you do is great. And I think exactly moving into tribal this quickly and do the, you know, interthinkers, whatever you want to do, interthinkers. Yeah. It's just like get get getting defining a sort of new form of independent public intellectual. Okay, that's what you want to be. Okay. Let's see if you All can right. be that and then see if you can create a network of these guys and stuff like we do now with the Intellectual Deep Web fits perfectly into that. I think overall, we're creating a whole new discourse that's post-academic, post-mass media, post-politics, uses the online world and goes into dialogue and commentary, deep commentary on the shit we're in, right? Are, so, are, yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you ever come to the States? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Probably I'm back in the spring again. I'm actually going to speak to John Farvarkin in a couple of Minutes. Uh, yeah, I am working with several different products in North America. I'm an old friend of Jordan Hall's and Daniel Schmachtenberger's. I think their work is great. Oh, Jordan, Jordan Hall's done my show before. Yeah, I know him. Yeah, he's brilliant. He's brilliant. He's, he's also challenging me by being the first philosopher in Socrates who insists on our writing a book. Oh, See yeah? if he gets away okay. with that. Right. See if okay. he gets away with that. Now, I love the guys. They're doing great work. They're doing work that complements what we try to do in Europe. And, and I think when we're moving now, I talked to uh, Tom Amark in, in Germany today, that so we're trying to build a European network that understands what we Europeans are good at. And it is the phallic vision, something that Americans, for some strange reason, don't want to touch. Right. Well, I definitely, I would love to do more kind of public live events. So if you ever need another person to come on to something, even last night, I'm flexible, man. So give me a shout if you ever want to. I'd love to meet you. Oh, yeah. I'd I'd gladly sponsor you with a flight ticket and get you over here and we do shit. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do that. Whatever, man. I'm game for whatever. And I think like you and I could come up with lots of interesting creative stuff. So that we'd have no problem there. Yeah. Like I said to Manuel Delanda once, finally, there's an American Delosian and of course a Delosian for architecture. He's he's one of the world's leading experts in architecture. He's fantastic, fantastic writer, philosopher. And I'd say to you now, finally, we got a Delosian who's a Delosian on technology coming from America, and that's you. Wow. Well, thank you, thank you for the kind words. I appreciate that. I don't want to keep I don't want to keep you too long. I think an hour and a half. No, no. What we planned. So yeah. uh, I think you have other things going on. But were there any other thoughts you wanted to get off your get off your shoulders before we before we wrap this baby up? 
No, 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 no. I, I think we're perfectly fine here. And, and, and the guys who do follow us are clever enough to get it. And like Alfred North White had once said, when a student complained about his books being bitchy, he said, I wish I made them even bitchier. So <laughs> at the end of the day, I want a threshold that respects people, but also so they understand the challenge to go into the kind of thing we do. So we get connected with the right people out there. Yeah. And oh, we yeah. create our own tribe in that process. That's what we do. And we're oh. just going to do it on two sides of the Atlantic. Yeah. Well, so. maybe, maybe they'll join soon, sooner than later. I'm, I'm I think sure. so too. I'm I game, so. man. I'm, I'm game. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Great. Uh, Alex, Alexander, thank you again, man. You're a really cool dude. You're really, really, uh, you, what you've achieved over your life in terms of being a truly kind of creative intellectual who says whatever the fuck you want, whenever you want, and you let the chips fall where they may. Like a lot of people, like some people can pull that off, but I don't know if I've met many people who have done that and have also found such success as you've had. I mean, you've, you've it know, pays off a lot. Ever. It's like we said, if you get the base station and then you can speak freely, it will pay off more than ever. That's what everybody's dying to hear right now. The guy who oh, speaks yeah. his mind freely. Yeah. Well, you've done it really well, man. And I, I would love to, I mean, I could pick your brain for hours more. I'd love to hear more about how you've done it and decisions you've made and, and things like that. But um, yeah, you're you're definitely a kind of role model, I think, for a lot of people uh, who are a little bit younger than you, like me. You know, you're, you're, out there, you're out there killing it, man, and doing whatever you, you want. I think you're kind of criminally under known in the United States. Like you're, I don't, I don't think many people watching my show will I, know your name. But I've, I've never, no, I, I was a record producer, songwriter. You've probably heard a lot of my songs on American radio. Yeah. I didn't care too much about breaking America because mm-hmm. either you focus on America or you focus on the rest of the world. And I enjoyed traveling the rest of the world so much. It, it, it doesn't affect me that. Yeah. You can go to Russia. Probably everybody knows who I am. It's different there, but it, it, it doesn't matter. Every, I mean, America is fascinating in the other place, but the way the media hierarchy looks is that you need to focus on America to try to get some kind of a top, at least according to Americans. And it takes a lot of effort to do that. I think you need to live there and spend a lot of time there. I mm. prefer to go to America now and then. I have my friends, I have my associates, and I do the work that I do. And I've always been welcomed. I always felt welcome in America. So that's great. Nice. Well, I think your accomplishments speak for themselves. You know, you've been out there. I think like really authentic, radical intellectuals. Uh, are, are, it's very clear when you encounter one. They make them. They have a way of making themselves known. Uh, as the, you know, the real deal announces itself. I think in undeniable terms. And I think your yeah, your commitment to a free, radical, intellectual life over the years, over a very, very long time, has been uh, really impressive. I think. And I've only recently became acquainted with you and, and your work. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm you know, I consider it a bit of a scandal that I had not heard of you sooner. So I'm, it's a real pleasure to know you. It's been real fun talking with you. I'm very glad you came on. I'm very grateful to have you on. And uh, yeah, I think I, I suspect that this is just the beginning of an interesting and hopefully quite productive and, and interesting friendship between you and I. Let's do that. All right, man. Thanks. Thanks again for coming. Okay. On. Real, yeah, real yeah. Cool I appreciate it. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Talk to you soon, man. Take it there easy. You go. Later. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you thought that was cool, then don't forget to subscribe. And it would be even cooler if you left a review. I'd appreciate that. And yeah, just to learn more about what I'm up to, you can check out theotherlifenow.com. That's all. And I will see you around the internet.